CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by Siemens Smart Grid. Welcome to CIO Talk Radio with your host, Sunjog All. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sunjog All. Good morning and welcome to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. And as always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter, hashtag CTR Live, and look for this show as hashtag SmartGrid. Today's topic is the Smart City Project, Infrastructure, Industry, and Citizens. And our guests for today's show are Harriet Rigoning, who is the Director of Washington, D.C. Office of Planning. Good morning, Harriet. How are you? Good morning. How are, I'm great. Very good. So so you're ready for the action here? I am. All right. Good. You're already going through a lot of action. I'm sure this is going to further add to the fun there. And we also have Gary Foster, who's the CTO of Massachusetts Bay Authority in Boston. Good morning, Gary. How are you? I'm very good. How are you today? Very good. So Boston treating you good? Yeah, well, we've had some weather the last uh, 36 hours, but we're used to that. And um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's not as smart when it snows out. All right, great, great, great. So, Dennis Gribble is also the he's, he's uh, our guest and also is the VP and CIO of Idaho Power. So, Dennis, how is life treating you? Oh, it's going exciting. I tell you, the utility industry is really jumping these days. I can I can imagine, and I'm sure you're having your 20-hour days. Are you enjoying those? Oh, they're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. So, uh, Harriet, let me start with you as a first question. We are talking about this subject around smart city. How much of this is uh, just at a concept level, or would you say is it truly a well-defined standard, uh, a standardized list of capabilities and maybe a set of amenities needed for modern urban living? Well, it's a that's a totally great question, and I think that it depends on the city, honestly. Um, I think that it's beyond uh, just a conceptual Phase, but I don't think we're yet to the place where there's a standardized list of, of amenities and characteristics and, and capabilities. Uh, but uh, it is definitely more than just a concept. And some of the things I think it probably includes for most cities is open data sources, uh, flexibility, um, a lot, uh, you know, the concept of choice, uh, whether that's in transportation, whether that's in uh, uh, source of, uh, of, of, of uh, electricity or power, um, whether that is uh, options for how people and where people uh, work, uh, you know, what the workplace is like, those are, those are some of the things. And uh, having a very flexible uh, set of, uh, of uh, uh, utility options is, a, is an important part of that. So, Gary, uh, when you look at uh, this concept of smart city and people talk to you, do you see 20 different definitions or people are coming close to one version of the truth here? Well, I think, you know, to use the Gartner term, I think there's always a kind of a hype cycle going on in areas like this. And you see some very big companies like IBM have been talking about it, you know, both in the marketplace and, you know, through ads for, you know, almost a decade. But I think it's happening, and I think... Um, you know, it's happening at different paces. You know, with the economy the way it is worldwide, you know, I think it, how far a city can take it is, depends very much on where that city's at and how many partnerships it can arrange. But, you know, today, just the other day, ABC had a story on Santander in Spain, which is a country that's been through quite a bit, and they've managed to um, 
basically get some get some receive some funding and the mayor is very advanced and they have put together you know basically put sensors throughout the entire city that tell people and then have applications that tell people the temperature the humidity how crowded the streets are how crowded the roads are and you know have an incredible amount of information and have it visitors from Google and Microsoft and from other countries come in and take a look. So a small city like Santander on the coast of Spain uh, is not smart yet, but is, you know, making uh, quantum leaps in that direction. And that's just, you know, recent, that's just one little recent news story. So I think it's happening, and it's certainly happening in Boston, Massachusetts, and in other small, in Cambridge and cities like that, but at, uh, at different paces and, and with different focuses. I think, uh, to follow up on Harriet, I think the, open data initiatives we've had here in Massachusetts have gone a long way to, to smartening us up. Now, Dennis, when you look at uh, the utility side, of course, you have to keep uh, at five nines in terms of always up, and you cannot afford to go down, and you've got to have everything predictable and structured. Do you think you can vouch for the smart city at the level of maturity it is at by looking at any actionable plans and or execution timelines which are very close, every every I's, I's dotted and every T is crossed? Well, I, I would hope so, but but I would say right now that uh, as in any major project or endeavor, there's always the three uh, uh, parts to it. There's the uh, technology part, there's the, the people part, and there's the process part. And I think when you talk about smart city, I think the concept is is very valid. I think from a technology standpoint, uh, I think that you do see the technology available and and, uh, and and vendors able to support that technology. The challenge really comes from what I've seen from around the uh, the processes and especially the people. When I talk about people, that's uh, in a loose term in terms of also organizations. So the uh, the private, municipal, uh, governmental uh, partnerships, the processes that go along with that. Uh, those barriers are very very hard to uh, to really challenge and really to break down. And then when you also add into it the, the cost component, uh, the cost component always becomes a very big challenge in terms of, of seeing through a complete, uh, a complete concept. So I think from a technology standpoint, I think we definitely are there. I think the technology can support it. Uh, but when it comes to uh, actually enabling that through the, uh, the different processes and the different uh, entities that need to be involved with it, that's where the real challenges come, and that's where it's, uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to make it happen. Now, uh, Gary, you did mention about Spain. Would you say that's one of the examples which is just about getting there but not fully there yet? And would you would you have an example of a smart city which actually has seen it all the way to success? And if they have done so, what is it that they are doing which is so innovative and what other people can follow as a lead? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any – I'm not familiar with any city, even with the research we've done here, you know, here at the MBTA, of anyone who's gotten there. You know, most large cities – you know, the, you know, I'll leave China out of it for a minute. Most, most large cities have, have been in existence for a long time, and the combination of aging infrastructure and um, green initiatives and um, multimodal initiatives that are going on, most cities are in transition to smart so, I mean, if you think about New York City, which, of course, is the richest and one of the largest cities in the world, they've got a, a number of challenges in the transportation realm, but they have, a, you know, a multi, you know, they're making a huge investment working with Siemens, and, uh, you know, they're mm-hmm. investing everything from smarter schools to, you know, better lighting on the streets to electric car, and, you know, they want to get more infrastructure for electric cars. So I think that people are just 
prior i think cities are prioritizing and picking it off i and there's a number of cities from dubai you know to san diego that have that have made tremendous progress uh, but i don't think anybody would declare themselves complete or, or even like, even close you know i think we've made a, a tremendous progress just in boston in the last 5 years but we we're just getting started frankly how do, so I do how think do you, it's out there. I think the problem. I think the big problem is um, you've got to start with some quick wins, and you've got to. It's got. I think it also. I think it's got to lead to growth for the community, both in terms of being interesting to the private sector, and um, you know, affordable for the public sector. I mean, I think no, in I, some ways we've jumped into what is. Uh, what is a smart city uh, and gotten a little bit into the technology and the, and, and the other issues. And I think in some ways it, it might be useful to take a step back and say, you know, what is it that, uh, that, that smart city approaches are trying to achieve? And I think one thing is to basically use the assets of the place much more efficiently, much more intensely, and in doing so provide citizens and customers more choices, lower costs, and basically uh, a broader set of positive outcomes, whether those are uh, greenhouse gas-related, whether those are uh, beautification-related, whether those are, uh, you know, uh, adaptation-related. Uh, some of these approaches do things to physically cool the city or enable uh, the city to better manage stormwater or do all kinds of things. So I think in general it's about spending a dollar and getting 4 or $5 worth of solutions. Now, Harriet, what do you think is truly the compelling business case which is asking us or pushing us to go this route? Because this could be a nice to have. We can, of course, keep growing within our cities. Yes, the citizens would have some issues, but is it really uh, going to be that uh, pressing for us to go into the smart city model or else? I mean, from a city perspective, you know, my city competes with not my suburbs, as, as, as center cities used to think. My competition isn't Montgomery County or, or Fairfax County in, in the Washington region. You know, my competition is Seoul, is London, is, is San Francisco, is Boston. Um, and that the, the, the ways in which cities compete, uh, in part, are to attract uh, talent and to attract uh, investment, whether that's human resource investment or or, or people willing to invest in the infrastructure and the physical assets of the city. And in order to do that, I think that, that many of these smart city moves are big signifiers of a place that's willing to innovate and a place that, is, that offers a lot of choice and amenities to people. So in my city, uh, you know, we've, we've, we have had the first decade of, of, of growth since World War II with the census that ended in 2010, and already in the just over two years since that that uh, that census, we've already attracted more people in those uh, 27 months than in the previous decade. And and part of that is because we offer people an enormous number of transportation choices, so they can live here without an automobile. And nearly 60% of our population growth is actually people under 35. So it's it now now the talent is starting to be here which is beginning to reshape our economy, move us more toward the knowledge economy and diversify uh, the, the sectors that are here and the employment that's here. So those are the ways in which I think a lot of cities think about uh, what, you know, what's the return on investment. You know, those, are the, those are the indicators of, uh, of a city succeeding. 
Now, uh, Dennis, while we definitely see Harriet's point in terms of building a compelling business case and thus can also demonstrate ROI, and so let's do it. Let's let's take that initiative and move forward. With that said, it also comes down to the execution. And there must have been instances where people tried it. They said, okay, that's a great idea. Let's charge ahead. And they may have failed or they may have had issues which they could have otherwise avoided. If you were to inventory some of the issues that people faced, what all things would you say uh, are, are, are basically the highlights? Well, the, the first one I would highlight would be the, the cost perspective. I think Harriet's right on in terms of making a compelling business case for, for smart city or any kind of uh, technology investment that goes along with that. Uh, a couple of examples that come to my mind. One is uh, in Boulder, Colorado, uh, a basic uh, a smart, gritty city concept. Um, gritty <laughs> smart city uh, concept where they're trying to put uh, uh, AMI or advanced meter infrastructure meters on uh, a good portion of the city there uh, came in as about a $15 million project as an estimate. Uh, by the time it really got off and going, it tripled in cost, became about almost 40 to $45 million. And then you've got not only uh, rate payers or customers who are, are, are not happy with that result, you have elected officials that are feeling the pressure from the cities, and then you have a, a private utility and other investors who are involved with that trying to get a return on it. So, so it really comes down to the ROI in the business case. The concept sounds wonderful. Uh, the ROI sometimes is not the, the biggest uh, case. Uh, another example is I think of a, of a utility in South Africa who is actually trying to manage the demand for the electricity. Uh, there are certain times during the day where they have excess demand. They can't have enough generation to make it work. Rather than trying to go through a complete technology or infrastructure deployment to help give people information, they simply use a Twitter account, and they simply have their customers sign up via Twitter. When it gets to be heavy demand, they send out a, a Twitter message uh, that talks about that they're having experiencing uh, high loads, would ask people to cut down any unnecessary energy consumption, and their demand curves immediately drop off based upon it. So there's there's two ways where you use technology. One that takes up quite a bit of infrastructure investment, quite a bit of cost, has not yet panned out in terms of its uh, if it's ROI, but then you have another ROI with simply using Twitter as a technology to simply get people to respond to uh, to needs and desires has a tremendous ROI. So uh, there's two business cases, both using technology, one that takes a heavy, heavy capital investment, one that doesn't. Uh, so I think it just comes down to how you can, uh, you can leverage a technology solution to get that business case ROI that, that, that Harriet's talking about. I think Gary, uh, the dentist made a really great point that, that, uh, and I would, I would call it, uh, I would say this, that, that if, um, that if you're gonna fail, you need to fail fast and fail cheap. Um, and so, in our city, uh, one example was our first bike sharing program. And we started out with a, uh, with a relatively small system, a hundred bikes, ten stations, and honestly, our utility had a very difficult time, uh, inexpensively and quickly uh, moving to uh, to install the necessary electric hookups in the locations that we needed them, and that was a, a, a big uh, limit on the ultimate expansion of the system. That wasn't the critical failure, but when, we, when, when that system failed, we were able to uh, come back with a new system that was 10 times as large, and we had it solar-powered so we wouldn't have those issues of being constrained by the pace of the utility installation. 
And uh, it was a huge success. It's now the largest bike sharing system in the uh, in the United States. And in the first two years, we had nearly three million riders. And it's really become kind of a uh, a signifier of what a bikeable city we're becoming, and a lot more people bike now, even when they're not using the bike share system. But that first, we never would have gotten that if we hadn't experimented with this first uh, system and learned from its failures. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And Gary, when we come back, would like for us to basically use that hindsight 2020 approach and see that if an organization which failed in or did not reach what they wanted to accomplish then what kind of cost-benefit analysis they should have performed, what kind of due diligence uh, planning and or resource allocation that they should have done in order for them to be able to, I mean, if they had done that, then they would have seen better success. And if there are any lessons learned, what are they for the organizations which are now attempting this uh, transition to Smart City now? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So, Gary, if you had to look back and maybe, you know, to a postmortem of the examples that we were sharing here in terms of not as successful smart city implementation. What kind of cost-benefit analysis that sh- they should have performed uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, even going for this initiative? What kind of due diligence, planning, or resource allocation that should have been required? And what kind of red flags that they should have watched out for during this journey? Oh, that's a big question. Well, let me try and break that down. Uh, first thing I'd say is uh, what I liked about the, the example in Washington with the bikes was they started small and they learned. I think one of the big changes in in the public sector is moving from complacency to being in learning organizations. It sounds like Washington, you know, Washington D.C. learned from some potential mistakes and moved right on. Uh, you know what we're actually doing here in Massachusetts, at, both at the state level and and uh, in the authorities where I am. We have uh, we have a new training program in ROI, and there's two really what we really want to focus on is obviously financial benefits is what people really think of initially, but in many cases the benefits are not uh, you can't quantify financial uh, victories, but you can sometimes have major um, benefits that are what we'll call just to keep it simple non-financial. So we're actually in the middle of a, a major training program for executives executives and leaders in um, both the state. And some certain local government in the Boston area and the state in Eastern Mass, particularly, to say, hey, well, we're going to if we're going to make a huge capital investment, you know, how are we really quantifying, uh, 
know, what's the methodology, how are we quantifying those benefits? So I don't have a great example of failure. You know, most of the research I've found is about successes. Um, you know, we'll see what happens in New York. You know, New York City um, is obviously one of the highest rated in terms of overall green. From being a green city, they're doing, they've done a tremendous job in the last 10 years. They continue to make a huge investment. They make big bets in New York, but I haven't heard about the failures. Here in Massachusetts, what we've really done is we have planted in most of our uh, organizations like uh, Mass Bay Transportation Authority, we've planted innovation leaders who are typically um, less experienced in government but have a, a, the right uh, capabilities to lead a lot of these initiatives. So sometimes we, we base what we the learning we've had is we try not to mainstream new initiatives that are particularly innovative or smart, whether it's our open, and I think our open data initiative is probably the best example. We kept the cost down. Um, we, we, we managed it outside of our standard processes, so we cut out a lot of uh, red tape, and we, um, we worked incrementally through the process without, and without making big investments up front. And now that we're three years into it, we're really kind of ratcheting up uh, the investment and, um, you know, watching for the benefits, particularly the non-financials. So uh, our open, open data initiative at the MBTA has been a huge success. We have hundreds of thousands of people looking at apps built by third parties using our data, and particularly, you know, with Google being probably the, the big dog in that, in that fight, where they, they basically take a feed from us in real time all day long, and they have a complete wayfaring system on Google Transit for Boston's um, you know, for the MBTA in Boston and Greater Boston. So I don't really have a great story of a failure, but what I think we've done is we've learned, we're learning from our mistakes and moving incrementally through some of these uh, new waters, and it's, it's paying off. That's good because what we want to also convey to the world out there that this is a good program. And while there are always some lessons learned, there are not always failures that you should follow. You just get lessons from them and move on because you have a bigger and higher purpose attached to this. So, Harriet, with that said, when it is looking like something that we all should be pursuing and we want to get ahead in, in terms of doing it timely and creating the value for everyone involved – the funding that has to be uh, acquired, how are the different constituents working together, whether at a city, municipality, local, federal, state level, all together are finding appropriate money and how are that being, how is that being channelized to, to appropriate, uh, acquire appropriate resources and, and whatever else is needed to make this a success? Um, that's a great question and it's also something that, I, that probably varies from city to city. I will say that once you begin to sort of be on a roll with this and you have some successes under your belt, um, I find that uh, then you're kind of like in a virtuous cycle, that then it becomes easier to, to find funds and to raise funds and to appropriate funds and to find partners because you have even a small track record. And the good news is that this isn't something that's been going on in cities for decades and decades. So, uh, you know, the chance to leap to the front of the pack is there for almost everybody, right? Because it's, it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been relatively recent. And that we, a lot of our cities are older, in the U.S. at least, and we, uh, we have a lot of aging infrastructure. And so the, the absolute necessity of having to replace that aging infrastructure opens up some new possibilities about how we might fund. So one example in Washington, again, is 
you know, we have a, a ancient uh, uh, sewer systems that that uh, uh, combine sanitary sewers uh, waste with stormwater. And so, in an age where we have increasingly large stormwater events, uh, uh, weather events, rainfall events that dump large quantities of water on the city, we had mu- we're having many, many more frequent overflows of the system, which end up dumping raw sewage into our, our rivers. So not a good thing. So the old solution would have been simply to build pipes and tanks as big as you can imagine uh, to manage that, uh, that problem. And then on the 80 days a year when you had more than a quarter inch of rainfall, they'd be useful. But in almost every city, the labor, the materials, the, the, uh, the, the everything, the equipment comes from outside of the region, and it does nothing for your economy on those other days of the year when it's not raining. Um, instead, cities are looking to use green infrastructure solutions where they're trying to make the surfaces of rooftops, of, of streets, of driveways, of other places much more um, uh, uh, engineered and designed to infiltrate stormwater, but they also do things like make the city more beautiful. They support habitat. They cool, they literally cool the city, which uh, generally suffers from something called urban heat island effect, where all the hardscape absorbs heat and makes it up to 10 degrees hotter than the surrounding uh, countryside in the summertime. So, you know, they, they do wonderful things. They, they reduce the energy bill for, uh, for building owners who undertake these practices, and they just make the city more pleasant and more beautiful. And those are the kinds of solutions I think that uh, that are really there for for every city. Let's take a quick break, listeners. Uh, we'll be right back. And Dennis, when we come back, would like to ask this question: that whatever the city elements that we're talking about, you you look at transportation, infrastructure, waste management, and utilities. We primarily want to make them smart in order for us to realize the smart city dream. And if that's the case, we are supposed to look for and or bank on a common communication platform and or an information superhighway. Uh, which will make this uh, communication happen and everything will start working in, in, in a proper sync. With that said, couldn't Smart Grid, which will be very embedded pervasively in the city, serve as a backbone? And if yes, how do you go about realizing that dream? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. Welcome back. So, Dennis, let's look at making transportation infrastructure, waste management, and utilities smart. 
on the surface, it looks like that we definitely need one common communication platform and or a superhighway, information superhighway. And how about using smart grid, which is essentially going to be embedded and will be pervasive across the city, uh, become the backbone? Well, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great idea. I think it's a great concept. I would say that uh, from, from my experience and what we've seen so far is that uh, you, you definitely need to make sure you've got that partnership with your, your regulators, your, your city governments, and also your, your constituencies in terms of the cost of what's going to happen on, on those particular sayings. Uh, you know, as far as the smart grid, uh, I mean, there's really two elements you can look at from our smart grid. One is the smart grid that enables uh, consumers to have better information, better education, to be able to make better decisions. And then there's always a question about where does that smart grid end? Does it end at the meter or does it actually go into the home itself and, and, and be a part of the actual home environment uh, also? Uh, two, two forces that are really driving, I think, smart grid and smart grid execution from a utility standpoint one is, as Harriet mentioned, we have tremendous aging infrastructure across the U.S. in terms of the utility uh, uh, grid. Uh, this grid was created over the last, you know, 50 to 100 years uh, based upon the same concepts that Edison actually put in place uh, uh, when he originally founded the, uh, the utility structure. And so as, as this aging infrastructure starts to go away, it's replaced with technology that is, does enable a smart grid concept. Uh, Two things pop up in that in that scenario. One is the cost of replacing that infrastructure uh, is going to put an upward pressure on rates for poor consumers. And secondly, the, the second part of it then is one that we live and breathe every day is the element of cybersecurity. Uh, it is such a pervasive network. It is such a pervasive ability uh, that you know being able to protect it from any, any kind of cyber issues or cyber attacks becomes a critical component of it. So back to the point being is if, if this is the going to be the superhighway, be the availability to uh, provide this uh, infrastructure for uh, a smart city environment, it certainly has the infrastructure and the capability within it. Uh, the point being is that it is going to be a tremendous cost, and so how are we going to address the cost and the pressures of that, of that cost? And then secondly, how can we make sure that this is a secure environment? Because if you're talking about a waste management system or a sewer system or, or anything else, uh, having that uh, susceptible to a cyber attack uh, causes all sorts of, uh, of issues and concerns for, for a community to be involved with. So I do see the smart, uh, the grid as a smart platform for uh, those type of uh, communication highways, but uh, it is going to take some awareness and some consensus building around the cost of this and also the, the security of that. So, uh, Gary, looking at the, the transit authority, and, and I'm sure you got your counterparts in other cities who are uh, you know, grappling with the same challenge. If you had smart grid as the backbone and it allowed to make all different infrastructure components, including your own, uh, smart, do you see obvious value coming out? And if yes, in what all ways would it help? Yes, and first let me say that there's no doubt that the, the thing that always uh, gets in the way is cybersecurity. That is a, uh, it's not a block, but it is something that has to be um, overcome in each of these situations. So I'll give you a specific example. We have a number of executive agencies and authorities in Massachusetts that are involved in what I call emergency management. And we have a state level, you know, Massachusetts Emergency Management Association. And we spent the last three years 
working on connecting these various agencies and authorities together through, we'll call it the smart grid to keep it simple, and the project probably, you know, it was, it's been successful, so we have created what I'll call an emergency management network, but it is really piecemealed together because of the cybersecurity aspects of it. We had to make huge investments in, you know, what I'd call uh, not just fiber management and the typical things, but in every agency and every authority and every uh, municipality involved in this emergency an emergency network that's been built out as part of the public a subset of a public safety network wanted their own um, information security technology in place and had their own not really separate policies but their own concerns and frankly we each you know the, what you have to think about when you about the smart grid <clears throat> utilities in Massachusetts are really not utilities. National Grid is, is not really, I mean, it's a utility, but it really is not a utility, right? It's a, it's a for-profit, uh, publicly traded company. It's not even U.S.-based. It's a global entity. They're providing most of the grid in, in this area. Uh, working with someone like that is very different than it was 20 or 30 years ago when they were Boston Edison, and it's really were a utility. So that's changed. So that you know, the face of utility has changed from uh, the government's point of view. And the bigger issue is, each of these agencies I'm talking about are connected to uh, the federal government through a different agency. So transit has the FTA, highway has the FHA, and so on. Um, the airport has the FAA. So we work together quite frequently, but we each are governed in very different ways, and the rules are not as consistent. So I'm obviously not going to get into the Washington politics, but I think those um, sometimes trickle-down effect on uh, regulation makes it very difficult to, to leverage the grid the way that we really could. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back after these messages. And Harriet, uh, how about looking at the smart grid and seeing if we can get over the issues related to cyber attacks and other things, which basically could be part paranoia, part something that we have to work on. How can we look at it from a positive uh, approach and say, Let's build the smart grid, let's implement it, and let's build upon it versus trying to attach it to uh, something that's already moving uh, in terms of trying to make it as a smart infrastructure. Is that possible? How would you, if you were to do all of this, how would you structure it and would you make smart grid the backbone? Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. You are listening to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. If you have a question or comment, call toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Here's Sunjog All. 
Welcome back. So, Harriet, if we were to look for cities to really become smart and they are already uh, taking on initiatives and they're underway, would it not make sense for ideally utilities to take the lead, help implement Smart Grid to uh, the level of sophistication that it requires, and let that become the very fabric on which you build the other components versus ripping, first building the others, then putting Smart Grid and then ripping apart everything and doing rework and spending more money? Uh, it, that's a tough question to, to answer. I think that uh, that in many ways, Smart Grid is uh, is a leading exemplar of an approach that I think many many cities are beginning to adopt. Um, and and let's talk about what Smart Grid means. It it, it means that uh, uh, instead of our old meters that had to be manually read once a month or less frequently, if you couldn't. Uh, contact the homeowner to get access to some of the meters. These are, uh, uh, it, Smart Grid includes, among other things, advanced metering that uh, uh, that have two-way communication that can be where uh, electricity utilization information can be uh, uh, accessed by the customer at any time and that the utility can communicate uh, issues and problems to the consumer and identify uh, issues with its own uh, distribution network so that uh, in places where the smart grid includes net metering, it also means that, that individual customers could become generators of electricity so that we have some redundancy and some ability for, uh, for uh, generation to be less centralized, more distributed. That means I could become not just a buyer of electricity at my house, but I could become a seller, maybe even a net seller uh, of, of electricity. So that's a concept that's really interesting. And I think it applies to all kinds of things. It applies not just to energy. Uh, it could apply to that issue I raised earlier about stormwater management. Uh, instead, of, uh, instead of a developer of an office building downtown having to meet all of his stormwater management requirements on site, he might actually want to rent my rooftop every year uh, that, that I'll, I'll put green uh, uh, living, uh, growing roof on my rooftop, and that becomes part of his system to manage the stormwater, and, 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 and I can uh, participate in that. I have an automobile that I use 5% of the time, and I park it 95% of the time, which is very typical of auto owners in cities. Maybe what I want to do is uh, allow other people to co-own my automobile or share the use of my automobile so they can have the benefits of automobility but without the high cost of having to own and park a vehicle. So I think the idea behind smart metering is is absolutely, um, uh, sorry, behind smart grid applies to the many, many things in cities that are basically about using technology, using information uh, to, to have transactions with individuals and with small companies that would have never been possible uh, without technology, without these innovations. Now, Dennis, uh, in your shoes, if you were to be invited to lead the pack when it comes to building a smart city, how would you see that particular uh, initiative go where utilities are leading it, they have put a smart grid in place, and yes, uh, and, and then basically touch all different areas, the infrastructure, transportation, et cetera, and, and uh, basically leading the pack. Do you, do you foresee something like that becoming a reality and more and more so with cities? Uh, yeah, no, I definitely see that as being a possibility. I, w- I would say uh, in our case here in Idaho, 
that we've been able to lead uh, that effort from a, uh, a smart grid standpoint, basically around our AMI infrastructure. Uh, we had a, a great relationship with our uh, state regulator in terms of, of putting the uh, AMI infrastructure, the advanced meter infrastructure in place. Uh, it really came from twofold. One, from a, a need to help manage the, the growth and demand of our electricity consumption in Idaho, but also from a standpoint of we're a large territory, about 24,000 square miles. And so we had, as Harriet mentioned, we had a lot of people running around in trucks, uh, reading meters and on the road and, and trying to get this all put in place. So uh, from a standpoint of us being able to lead the ability to get those trucks off the road uh, has environmental uh, benefits for doing that. Uh, it also has cost savings for uh, customers by doing that, but then it also gives us a lot of advantages in helping to uh, manage that grid uh, going forward. We then were able to also leverage that with a Department of Energy grant uh, then to take that one step further to where uh, those uh, smart meters and that information coming off the meters could then be utilized and seen by our customers in helping to manage their, their consumption, ha- having to manage their bills. So it really came down to a standpoint that we could lead the way uh, with the proper uh, uh, interaction and, and consensus with regulators and also city governments and councils in, ter- in terms to make that happen. So I see that as the, as the, as the key part of this whole equation is you do need to have that consensus building uh, between a utility or a grid operator and uh, and the city entities, state entities, and even federal entities to to pull this into into place. But I do see that utilities could play a key role in helping to to make that go forward. Now, Gary, in your world, if you were to see really the smart grid put in place and it's successfully done so, and keeping it secure, etc., how do you see that actually in a quantifiable terms or even qualitatively impact positively the infrastructure elements like transportation, water, and or waste management? And let's start with transportation because that's close to you. Right. So in the transportation space, one of the great things that happens in smart grid is the underlying communication technology is in place. So, you know, we talked about that earlier. When we have um, fiber strands available to share across um, modes or, you know, whether it's, you know, waste management, having some strands and sharing those with water management or the other authorities or the airport sharing fiber with the MBTA, that's, that's a huge reduction in cost of construction and allows us to get to solutions much quicker. So the technology around smart grid and some of the companies that are building that out, all of these solutions that we talked about earlier in the, in the conversation require the, you know, information superhighway to be in place, and that that's imp- implied with smart grid. We actually are, as we speak, leveraging that in Boston. We are um, leasing or sharing pairs with, um, actually, a, a number. Of, some of this technology has been sold to. There's private companies coming in and marketing. And we're marketing our we're marketing all of the extra resources we have under the ground where we've made big investments in laying out fiber, making them available to the private sector at cost, but but also making them available to other members of the public sector, you know, really at no cost. And one of the big things that we're doing in Massachusetts is we're 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 going beyond Greater Boston across the entire state and Cape Cod with um, using our highway departments. Uh, right of way to basically create um, better access for all the cities and all of their residents by creating in places where, for instance, uh, utilities or cable companies 
haven't seen the benefit of of installing fiber and, and bringing cable to small towns in the countryside. We are doing that through a couple of major initiatives in Massachusetts. I think that those types of things will become the infrastructure for the smart grid, whether it's being, regardless of who's actually building it out, whether it's utility or the public sector. We can share all that, and we can get we can get AMI technology into small cities in Western Massachusetts, where otherwise it just wouldn't have been viable. So uh, there's a Massachusetts broadband initiative going on in the western part of the state, and something called Open Cape uh, on in the southeastern part of Massachusetts. We're really expanding um, the infrastructure required to enable smart grid and to enable the transportation solutions we need, whether it's um, countdown signs or you know, even parking meters to be online 724. So, Harriet, if you were to look at all of these uh, elements of smart city brought together and every component is developed and modernized and you start getting value, how will you essentially look for synchronizing these efforts so that all different departments and elements get equal benefit from making this uh, whole ecosystem as a smart city? Hmm, I think that uh, that Gary had some insights into this when he talked about how different agencies can use elements of the, uh, you know, of the communication technology to, to link in. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, that that's, you know, very, very critical. I think already in our cities, uh, we increasingly use uh, n- different and much more efficient means of communicating. We all have apps probably for uh, those 311 calls that we used to take over the phone that would be very laboriously routed to different agencies. You know, now they can be sent electronically, uh, you know, very, very easily uh, to agencies and, and, and in real time when there's, a, when there's an issue, whether it's a pothole or a missed trash pickup or a street light that's out or whatever it might be. Uh, and that, and that's, that's been incredibly important. We're also asking our citizens to let us know how we're doing. So the dialogue between the customer and the agency providing the service is also becoming much more real-time and transparent. So we have a project called Grade DC uh, where uh, many of our frontline agencies that have a lot of customer service interaction with our citizens, they get rated every month uh, in terms of how they're doing. So I think that's one way in which uh, across agencies we're we're seeing uh, the value of uh, uh, you know of becoming a, a smarter city. But I also think that uh, we have uh, capacity and assets that are currently underutilized. And in, in, I mentioned the the situation of the automobile, which is a very expensive, depreciating, durable good that uh, that that in many many places in America. There are six to eight parking spaces for each and every one of these uh, vehicles. So anything that you could do that would increase the amount of use of those, uh, those uh, the intensity of the use of those vehicles would actually reduce the number of them that you had to park. And that's a real constraint for a lot of cities that, and, and, and a real cost for, uh, for cities in terms of having to provide that parking and it adds to the cost of, of housing. So I think in almost every instance that we could talk about, there's a public safety component. There's a there's a resilience component. There's a uh, you know there's a uh, an amenity related benefit. 
whether that's the quality of, of the place or the quality of the service that's associated with these kinds of investments. So, you know, I think in, in you know, in general, uh, you know, whole city moves up the, uh, uh, you know, moves up the, the ladder, if you will, toward being a much more livable, innovative, uh, dynamic place when they begin to look at uh, these suites of technologies and systems, uh, uh, you know, in their cities. Now, uh, Dennis, what do you think would be a good way to look at the timeline? Because it looks like a pretty ambitious project. So many different departments within a city have to coordinate, and they want to get to a level of maturity so that the combined value is actually exceedingly uh, encouraging for people to keep investing in it. With all that said, well, a lot of synchronization is to be done, and then there is a, a timeline that has to be established. Otherwise, it's going to become like an endless journey. What is being done in that regard so that you will see light at the end of the tunnel and say, okay, we are done with this project? Yeah, I'm not sure you can ever say you're actually done with the project because it is a series of, I think, uh, many projects. And I guess it, uh, it, always, it always helps to start with the vision of where you want to be uh, when you start a particular effort. But I think the important part, again, is, is uh, making sure that when you establish a timeline for this, that it is established with a, a vision and also a consensus about what that vision is within whatever entity you are, whether it's an agency or whether it's a city government or a state or even a national government. So having that vision and then having the consensus of where you want to go to make that happen is, is, is really the key part of that timeline. I think the other component of that timeline then is there needs to be some uh, leeway in terms of that no, no one really has the final answer as to what this is going to look like from a mechanical or from a, of a technical standpoint. So there are going to be some uh, successes and there are going to be some failures along the way. So allowing that uh, failure to happen, allowing that recovery of those investments to happen as, as part of that time is very, very important. I always make the analogy back to the venture capital world, which I think this is kind of what was going on with a with the smart city concept. Uh, you know, in the venture capital world, uh, you invest in nine out of ten companies, and nine out of ten fail, but that tenth one hits it, and it makes up for all the losses that go along with the other nine. So I think you have to, along that timeline, allow for uh, innovation, allow for failure, allow for uh, learning that goes along, and then once that that uh, tenth company, so to speak, is found within that timeline. Then that's when you start to really engage the the investment, the the uh, the uh, 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 momentum, the the buy-in to that particular timeline going forward. But I think you've got to start first of all with a vision. You've got to start with a consensus of that vision, and then you've got to allow for some failure uh, along the line, especially from a standpoint of a of a private entity being part of that, because again, they have shareholders that they have to report to, and so they're not going to be too thrilled about uh, investments that uh, don't uh, allow some kind of recovery. Now, one uh, one last question I'll ask each of you, say 30 seconds each. So starting with you, uh, Harriet, what would you appeal or what is your appeal to the various uh, constituents and stakeholders, maybe utilities and cities and regulatory leaders, in order to make the smart city utopia a reality? Well, I think that one of the things that, that doesn't happen in a lot of cities is that that, uh, that we don't sit down together to really talk about the future. Utilities are highly regulated still uh, in, uh, in, in uh, our cities, and they often uh, operate under quasi-monopolistic conditions. 
Um, and I don't know that we have the kind of, you know, uh, visionary, uh, future-oriented discussion that we really need to have uh, in order to, to get the optimal outcomes. And so for me, that would be an important first step to, to be able to sit down and do that because, as I mentioned, in some cases, um, the, the fleetness of the utility might be a real constraint on the ability of the city to move some of these ideas forward. And I'm sure the utility would say the same thing about the city's regulatory armature. So I think that's an important conversation. Gary? I would, uh, I would say it's about leadership. And if you look at Santander, the mayor took a leadership position there and has made, it, has made things happen. I think in Boston, whether it's Mayor Menino or Governor Patrick, it's really about, it's really about our political leaders pulling together that broader community and I think, as someone mentioned earlier, consensus is critical. What are we really interested in? Right now, we're very interested in multimodal transportation in Massachusetts, getting bicycles lane, bicycle lanes built where, where appropriate, making it safe for bicycles. We pick things like that, and we drive those until we reach some point of success, and we focus on something else. I think it's if we take everything on at once, we'll have a lead balloon. So leadership needs to pick their priorities and drive people like me towards that. And we're doing that here in Massachusetts pretty successfully. Finally, Dennis? Yeah, I would uh, concur exactly with both Gary and Harriet. I think, you know, again, uh, from my standpoint, from a utility standpoint also, uh, happy consumers, happy ratepayers, happy citizens, uh, we all have the same goal in mind. And, and a smart city really can add to those kind of uh, uh, benefits for both a consumer who is a citizen who is a ratepayer. And so getting together and, and finding out what those commonalities are and how to best approach those from both a, a private entity but also a public entity standpoint and then setting that vision, again, I think is a very, very key first step in really making this happen. As I mentioned to begin with, you know, I think we do have the technology and the process uh, can be established, but I think it's about people and how people get together to actually make that happen is the, is the key. On behalf of the show and our listeners, I'd like to really thank you, Harriet, uh, Gary, and Dennis, for sharing your thoughts about how uh, we can build all the different elements and work together to make this Smart City project a success. Pleasure. Happy to be on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a great time. Thank you very much. And thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Radio. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CIO Talk Radio. To learn more about the show, please visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Join Sunjal Gall next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific for another hour of CIO Talk Radio. CIO Talk Radio is brought to you by Citrix, offering go-to assist, remote support made easy. The U.S. and Canada represent just 5% of the global population, but collectively we consume about 35% of the world's resources. Supply is not keeping up with demand, so change is not an option, it's imperative. Siemens brings knowledge to power through modernization, responsible energy consumption, and greening the grid projects. Siemens Smart Grid has the answers. Just Google Lead the Charge Portal. 